This morning we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapters 10 through 16. You can find that in the Bible provided on page 88 and following. As we come to Leviticus 10, we need to remember that Leviticus 9 ended on the highest of high notes. If you recall, at the end of Leviticus 9, God's glory appeared to all Israel as they were gathered at the entrance of the tabernacle. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed their sacrifices, and all the people shouted and fell on their faces at the sight of God's glory. What this means is that the way to God had been opened for sinful Israel. This appearance of God was the the culmination of the sacrifices that the newly ordained priest Aaron had offered for himself and for the people. It showed that God had accepted their sacrifices and that the holy God was dwelling with his people on earth. That's the big headline for the book of Leviticus. God shows sinners the way to have fellowship with him. Sinners can come to him for forgiveness and fellowship through the blood of the sacrifices. The scenario that ends chapter 9 is a kind of ideal scenario. Moses obeyed God and anointed the priest, and then the priest Aaron obeyed God in the service of the tabernacle. The people obeyed God by bringing their offerings to God, and God meets with his people. His people worship. That's the way the tabernacle was supposed to work. But what happens when things go wrong? What happens when a major sin defiles God's holy place and the worship of God? What if there's a major failure in this system? That's what Leviticus 10 through 16 are all about. Now we should say that the fact that people sin and sometimes sin in big ways and sometimes sin in their worship is no surprise to God. The whole tabernacle system exists to answer the problem of Israel's sin. And so the teaching we find here in in chapter 10 through 16 is not evidence that God's kind of scurrying to find an answer to a problem that he didn't foresee. That's not who God is. Now instead what these chapters do for us is they, they further illuminate the way to God for sinners. They teach us something more about who God is and what sinners need if we are to approach him. So God is shining an even brighter light, first on the distance between sinners and himself, and yet at the same time, he's also shining that light on the way to come to God, the way that sinners can approach him. This morning, as we look at these chapters and we see how we can approach God, we're going to see three things. First, we see that worship must be according to God's word. Worship must be according to God's word. Second, we see that there is no worship without cleansing. There's no worship without cleansing. And third, we worship the atoning God. We worship the atoning God. Those are the three headings that we'll use to look at this passage this morning. I've already said that Leviticus 9 ended on the highest of high notes, but chapter 10, we descend to the depths. 
It introduces a major problem. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus chapter 10. Again, if you're using a Bible we've given you or you got off the back table, that's on page 88. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Remember once again, the very last verse of Leviticus chapter 9 says that God's fire came out from before the Lord and consumed Israel's sacrifices. Here, two verses later, the exact same phrase is used, but this time it's God's fire breaking out in judgment. And he's not consuming substitute sacrifices. He can, he's consuming these two sinners. These, through, these two newly consecrated priests who have brought this unauthorized fire. We're not told much in the way of details about what exactly Nadab and Abihu did and why their fire was so offensive to God. Given what we read later in chapter 10, it's possible they were drunk. Some speculate that maybe they were trying to enter into the Holy of Holies. We don't know. The key detail for us, though, is there in verse 3. They were doing things in God's holy tent, which he had not commanded them. Leviticus has been full of God's commands, commands about how Israel was supposed to approach God. And there were specific commands given to the priests about how they were to approach God, how they were to serve in the tabernacle. But Nadab and Abihu ignore God's commands about the right way to draw near to him. And they attempt to approach God in their own way, a way that was contrary to his commands, a way that he had not authorized. And so their innovative worship costs them their lives. Because of their innovation, their unauthorized fire, the Lord's fire has broken out against them in the tabernacle. Their disobedience in the holy place cost them their lives. We see then that worship must be according to God's word. Worship is a deadly serious act. It's a joyful act, but a deadly serious one. And it's deadly serious because God's holy life is pure and powerful. Nadab and Abihu show us what happens when sin enters God's presence without the covering of the atoning sacrifice. When sin and corruption comes into God's holy presence, God's holiness obliterates it. So God has been speaking in Leviticus in order to teach unholy people how to approach him in holiness. How that can happen without sin break, or judgment breaking out against sinners. But Nadab and Abihu's unauthorized fire was trampling on this gracious word of God. You see the kindness and the grace in God's word to teach sinners how to come to him? By ignoring God's commands... Nadab and Abihu are trampling on the grace of God. Worship must be according to the gracious word of God. 
The rest of chapter 10, we see the immediate aftermath of God's judgment. One of the peculiar things is that God tells Aaron, their father, and their brothers, their surviving relatives, that they cannot be involved in the burial or the mourning of Nadab and Abihu. It appears that God wants his holy priests, these newly consecrated priests, that they should not identify in any way with the sin of Nadab and Abihu. He doesn't want them being even tempted to sort of sympathize with what Nadab and Abihu were up to. And so he prevents them from being involved in the, in the mourning rituals of their death. And so cousins are brought in to take away the bodies. God says, leave it up to the rest of Israel to wail and mourn for these priests. Aaron and Moses then have a dispute about why Mo- Aaron and his sons did not eat the sacrifice for sin that had been offered as part of the sacrifices in chapter 9. This is a strange dispute to find here, but it seems actually it should be an encouraging sign because it shows that Moses is really concerned. Hey, we, we messed up here. We see Nadab and Abihu did not offer authorized fire. We need to pay attention to obey God's word. But likewise, Aaron has right concerns. He, he's concerned, well, maybe I've been defiled in some way, and I need to be careful about eating those things that are holy to the Lord. And so Moses accepts that. In both cases, there seems to be a godly concern to honor what God has commanded about his tabernacle. But even though God's judgment against sinners is kind of the big headline in chapter 10, it would be a mistake to see that God's judgment is the only response here to what happens with Nadab and Abihu. That's not his only response to sin. We actually see here the the bigger overarching thing in Leviticus 10 through 16 is that God responds to the sins of these priests in the tabernacle by providing even more of his word to his people about how to worship him. So the very next verse after the judgment on Nadab and Abihu, chapter 10, verse 3, we read this. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Moses is giving a a very direct correction slash instruction. God must be glorified and sanctified by those who would draw near. In this moment of judgment, God teaches his people about his holiness. That this is how you come. You come, sanctifying me, calling me holy, hallowed be your name, and glorifying me, trusting me, relying on me. That's what God's word calls his people to do. We see more of God's instruction in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Pay attention to this. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now, the call to... The call here for priests to avoid wine or strong drink makes a lot of sense in light of what's just happened to Nadab and Abihu. So whether they were drunk or not, God is saying, when you come into this place, you need to be clear-headed. You need to have all your wits about you about what is proper. 
So no drinking for Moses and his priests, or Aaron and his priests. But I want you to see what God tells Aaron he's to do in verses 10 and 11. In response to Nadab and Ubihu defiling the temple, bringing uncleanness into the presence of God, God now commissions Aaron and his sons to discern what is holy and what is common, what is clean and unclean, and then to teach the people how to do that as well. So the Lord's response here to the sin of Nadab and Abihu is to continue teaching his people how to worship him. To teach his people how to remain clean and holy. How to be purified. So that they don't repeat what Nadab and Abihu did. So that they don't bring their uncleanness into the presence of God and be struck down. In a minute we're going to turn more to look at these commands about what is clean and unclean. But we need to see that if we would worship God today, we need to consider how he's taught us to come to him. God, who is the one who determines what is right worship and what is not. And it's God's grace to tell us these things. It's God's grace that he reveals to us how to come in worship of him. Again, this is the very word that Nadab and Abihu ignored. God's response to our sin is to graciously tell us how to deal with our sin and how to come to him. The way that God calls people today to worship him is through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus died to save sinners and to reconcile us to God. He is God's gracious word to us. And there's no life in God's presence apart from him apart from faith in Jesus. And so if we sinful people attempt to approach God in our own way, apart from Jesus, our fate will be the same as Nadab and Abihu's. I don't mean that you're going to be struck down dead where you sit because you make a wrong move. God is extraordinarily patient with our sin. But one day we will face God. We will come to his throne of judgment and if we come to him in our sin, without faith in Christ, we will be judged. We will receive what Nadab and Abihu received. God's word for our worship is that it must be in the name of Jesus. That's what he says to us. There's no other name that saves. Are you attempting to come to God in some other way than through Christ? We'll see in a minute that the Lord commands his people to be holy. But good works alone are not the way to God. Good works will not save you. You can't do enough good works to erase the stain of sin on your life. Are you trusting in your own goodness or in your own self-improvement to get to God? What characterizes your approach to God? Are you listening to his word? Are you coming to God through the atoning work of Jesus, or are you coming in some other way? God's dealing with Nadab and Abihu doesn't only help individuals, but it helps churches like ours to think about what we do when we gather for corporate worship. We understand that our entire lives are to be marked by the worship of God. They're living sacrifices. 
But we do see that God has taught us in the New Testament how we are to approach him. This is one of the things that distinguishes us as a church in the the Protestant and Reformed stream of of churches. So if you look back at the, the Reformation, we often highlight the doctrinal renewal that was found there as the Reformers returned to the Word of God to retrieve ideas like justification by faith alone, which we've confessed the last two weeks. But the Reformation was also a major reformation of worship. It was putting aside the man-made traditions that had accrued over the centuries in the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a return to worship according to God's Word. And so because of Nadab and Abihu's example, we, in that same tradition, are careful in our public worship not to add rituals and ceremonies against what God has ordained. We have to be vigilant against this because innovations are all over the place. Churches are often encouraged to be novel in their worship. And we have to be vigilant because rituals are appealing to us. They can be reassuring. But we we don't see in the New Testament any place the Lord prescribed pastors like me certain robes to wear. He's not prescribed for us any icons or statues that we're to use in worship. He didn't ordain a calendar of feast days even that the church is supposed to observe. He's not given any architectural plans for our church buildings the way he gave for the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus hasn't ordained any specific rituals of penance that we are to perform to purify us. If he'd done so, again, we'd have clear instructions. He didn't leave the people of Israel without instructions for their worship. But what God has told us in his word is that his word and the gospel should be central when we gather together. And so we listen to God as he speaks to us through Christ. So in doing this, we're following the example of the early church in the book of Acts. We spend time when we gather reading his word. We spend time praying God's word back to him. We spend time singing songs that are filled with the the words and images of Scripture and and the theological truths of Scripture. We spend our time listening to preaching like this. The two ordinances that we observe are the ones that Christ ordained, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Our worship is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's informed and ruled by His Word. And so in our worship, we confess the truths of the gospel in our confession of faith. We confess our sin to God, and we rejoice in the assurance of pardon. And that assurance of pardon, it's not my words or any other pastor's words of absolution. It's God's word. It comes from the Bible. It's God's pronouncement that you're forgiven of your sin if you trust in Christ. So we don't aim to be novel or innovative in our worship Our aim is to be those who hear God's word and obey it by coming to God in Christ. In the words of Leviticus 10, verse 3, we come near to God to sanctify him and to glorify him. We pray as our Lord taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. We glorify God by resting in the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is how we apply the lesson of Nadab and Abihu. We worship God according to his eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Focusing on the work of Christ is a great segue to our second point. 
There is no worship without cleansing. Earlier I said that Leviticus 10.10 sets the outline for the rest of the book of Leviticus. Or if I didn't say that, I meant to. The, The Lord told Aaron that he and the priests were to distinguish between what is clean and unclean and what is holy and common. And then he was to teach those things to the people. So in Leviticus chapter 11 through 15, we find teaching about what is clean and unclean. And then in Leviticus chapter 17 through 23, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, we find teaching about what is holy and common. So we have these two big chunks of teaching about what is clean and unclean and what is holy and common. And sandwiched in the middle of those things, we find chapter 16, the instructions about the Day of Atonement. This was a a once a year ritual for cleansing Israel of her sin and purifying God's dwelling place. It was a ritual of cleansing for God's people. It shows us there is no worship without cleansing. We're not going to look in depth at the laws of chapter 11 through 16, but let me just tell you how they're structured. So chapter 11 contains laws for clean and unclean animals. And it regulated what Israelites could eat. Chapter 12 contained laws for purifying women after they'd given birth. It's important to see here that babies do not make women unclean, but it's the blood associated with childbirth that is the issue. Chapters 13 and 14 contain laws about unclean skin diseases. In your, in your Bibles, that's translated leprosy because of the way the Greek word for these things was lepra. But it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with what we modern day people know as leprosy. It probably just refers to any skin disease. So those laws, laws are about skin diseases. And then if someone recovers for, from a skin disease, what they have to do to be purified and restored to the fellowship of Israel. Chapter 15 contains laws about those who were made unclean by some bodily discharge or the shedding of blood. So that's the overall structure of these groups of laws. Now, if you were a good church member and you read through these passages this week, I no doubt, uh, no doubt you have lots of questions, and I will not uh, answer most of them for you. Almost none of them, actually. <laughs> but I hope we can see as we go through this why God puts such an emphasis on his people being clean from defilement. Before we jump into that, though, there's a kind of a preliminary lay of the land we need to establish about this system of uncleanness and cleanness. So in God's kind of categorization of all things, he has two big buckets. He's got clean and unclean. Everything, people, per, people, places, animals, things can be either clean or unclean. Now in the clean bucket, there's a further categorization of clean things and holy things. Okay? So we've got unclean over here, clean, and then holy as a further subdivision over here. Something that's unclean can't become holy without first being cleansed. So again, this can refer to people, places, or things. Let's take people for an example. Gentiles were unclean, Israelites were clean, and priests were holy. So priests are that subset of Israelites who've been consecrated as holy to God. Now we should say here, the cleanness of Israel had nothing to do with any kind of innate superiority that Jews have over Gentiles. It was nothing in them. What made them clean was that God called them and redeemed them. 
If you will, they have been cleansed by going through the Red Sea and having the blood sprinkled on them at Mount Sinai. That is why they're clean. Nothing, nothing about them. It's just God's grace upon them. Now you can look at the same thing in regard to places, right? The wilderness is considered the unclean place outside the camp. The camp of Israel is to be clean. And then within that clean camp, you have the tabernacle, the holy place. This is not, again, because anything special about tents and animal skins or golden furniture, because God declared it to be so, and he had it washed by the blood of sacrifices. And then we can see the same thing with animals. We have animals as a big group, like pigs that are unclean, pigs, camels, mice, lizards, those kinds of things. There's a smaller group, like sheep and goats and bulls. They're clean animals. And then there's a smaller group with them that become holy when they're brought to be sacrificed before the Lord. This is all according to God's command. There's nothing intrinsic about sheep that makes them better than pigs. So if you're listening to a Bible teacher today in the 21st century, and they're telling you don't eat pork because that'll keep you healthy, they're lying. Okay? There's nothing intrinsic about pigs that makes them unclean and, pork, uh, and sheep that makes them clean. So we should be able to see then that these, these things have these statuses, but their statuses can be changed. So unclean things or people can be made clean through atonement or the shedding of blood. And clean things can be set apart as holy, again, through atonement, through the shedding of blood. On the other hand, clean things can be made unclean by coming into contact with those unclean things. So a clean Israelite will become unclean if they touch a dead body. And they have to be purified. The holy blood of the sacrifices can purify things of their defilement. We see here kind of a, a system where holy, holiness can be contagious. Holy blood can purify something that's clean and make it holy. And uncleanness can be contagious. So if you're clean and you touch the unclean thing, you kind of catch its uncleanness. But cleanness is kind of static. It doesn't really make unholy things clean or vice versa. So all this emphasizes, though, that unclean things should have no contact with the holy, right? I heard one preacher say it's like when you, when you cross the wires and you're jumping the car and the sparks fly, right? Unclean things should have no contact with the holy. When they do, God's judgment breaks out. And that's what we see with Nadab and Abihu. Or you can look at when uh, Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant in Samuel, right? When the unclean comes in contact with the holy, God's judgment breaks out. There is no worship without cleansing. It's crucial that we understand all this so that we can dive in and understand why God cares about all this. But one thing we, we should see before we, we jump in further is that there is no real clear rationale about all this. So you can't find a explanation or an explanation that explains all of these different uh, purity laws. Uh, again, we've said a couple times, there's nothing innately superior about sheep over pigs or Israelites over Gentiles. They are clean by God's grace, by his word. Try as we might, we can't explain the rationale. So we, I can't tell you why, for instance, a woman who gives birth to a baby girl is unclean for twice as long as one who gives birth to a baby boy in God's law. There's no explanation. No scholar can tell you. I can't tell you why, again, the sheep is clean and the pig is not. The best we can do is to say, this is what God commanded. 
This is what God commanded. God's word says so. So having said all that, I want to give us three very important things that the cleanness code teaches. So three points within the point, all right? First, the cleanness code reflects God's holy life. Second, the cleanness code makes God's people distinct from other nations. And third, the cleanness code reminds God's people that the world is marked by sin and death. So let's just briefly look at these. The cleanness code reflects God's holy life. You see this in 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 44. This comes at the end of the laws about clean and unclean animals. God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. The Lord is holy, and his people are to be holy. That's what all of these laws are meant to teach them. They are to reflect the character of God. And so even though these often have to do with sort of external circumstances, we can see that this law is meant to teach something much deeper than that. God's people are to reflect his holy life. When the pure and holy life of God come into the contact with the defilement of sin and death, his holy life obliterates death. God's people were to be holy. They were to be part of God, in a sense, to share in God's holiness. They were to be people of life. And this is one of the major principles behind many of the laws. Not all the laws, but many of them, many of these cleanness laws can be explained by a principle of life. Life is holy, but death is defiled. You can see that in the sense that contact with, with any, any uh, dead body makes you unclean. The only exception to this is if it's the body of a holy sacrifice. But every other, every other dead body that you come in contact with makes you unclean. Likewise, we see that all the birds that are called unclean are birds of prey. They're predators. They get their sustenance by tearing apart other animals. It's not pretty. Right? If you ever watch the, the hawk video, it's not a pretty sight. Tommy and I were watching a video about pelicans on the rocks of Portugal, and they were eating these snakes. It was just disgusting. It's not a pretty sight. So these unclean birds are kind of the example par excellence of, of things that have associations with death. And this probably is the explanation for why things like skin diseases and the blood of, associated with childbirth, these things are not... They're not sinful, but they're kind of death-adjacent, right? They evoke images of death with the, the shedding of blood and the defilement of the human body. They evoke the imagery of death, and that's why they're unclean. So the cleanness code taught God's people they were to be holy like him. And as the trajectory of the Bible shows us, this holiness wasn't just a superficial holiness. It was supposed to be a deep holiness at the root of who they were. They were to keep their distance from death, which is the great symbol of sin. Number two, the cleanness code makes God's people distinct from other nations. In the 21st century, we know a lot about dietary restrictions, right? We know every friend of yours probably has some dietary restriction, and, and a lot of them are just preferences. But then there are some that are, that are really serious, right? Someone who has a, a serious allergy to a thing, and they can't be around that thing, right? And you know how this limits fellowship, right? 
If you've ever been the person with a dietary restriction and you get invited over to someone's house for dinner and like none of the food you can eat, it's awkward, right? Or you've been the person's preparing a meal for someone and you're like, well, I, I don't think they eat this. Do they eat that? Should we ask them if they eat that? You know, it, it, it inhibits fellowship, right? Well, that's a kind of very tiny example of what God accomplished with the holiness code or the cleanness code and the Israelites. He gave them dietary restrictions that were to keep them separate from the nations around them. They ate differently. So it made it really hard for them to go over to dinner at the Canaanites' house, right? That wasn't supposed to happen. So the cleanness code was to make God's people distinct. But even this, it was supposed to make them distinct in their holiness, not just to make them weird. God uses this, this symbol of their distinctiveness, though, as a symbol of what God's people should always be like. There should be a holiness that marks us. We, see, we saw in the passage that we read earlier from Acts chapter 10, Peter says to, to Cornelius that um, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, to God. This is what makes us clean, right? It's that deep-seated listening to God. Right? The opposite of what Nadab and Abihu did. That is what is supposed to make God's people distinct. You can see, again, how strange, strange it made God's people when, when God's people realized in the New Testament that this holiness, this purity code could be undone. That God was bringing an end to it. Much of the New Testament are, are these Jewish Christians trying to come to grips with how these, these food laws can go away and now we can have fellowship with the Gentiles. That's one of the great messages of the New Testament is that, that no one's unclean because they're a Jew or Gentile. You're only unclean because of your sin and you can be made clean through Christ. So God's cleanness code is to make his people distinct. And third, the code reminds God's people that the world is marked by sin and death. Uncleanness is everywhere in Israel's economy, Right? So you could be made unclean because a mouse dies in the pan that you use to cook food in and you have to destroy it. You could be made clean if you get a skin disease, right? Uncleanness comes through childbirth. There was no hope of living a perfectly clean life. And it wouldn't even been desirable to live that way because God wanted his people to be fruitful and multiply, right? And so this is not meant to condemn people and say, ah, you're unclean, God hates you. It was meant to just show them like they needed washing. They needed purification. There is no worship without cleansing. They were to understand themselves, God's people were to understand themselves as people who needed to be purified by God. That is the ultimate way to be clean. So our pursuit of purity should arise from the fact that God has cleansed us. Worship didn't require God's people staying away from all uncleanness, right? Worship required being purified from uncleanness. So as you read the purity, the purity code, you'll find not just telling them what's unclean, but how to be cleansed. For many of these things, the, the requirement of cleansing was pretty minor. Like, wash your clothes and wait till evening, and you're clean. When God's people came into contact with death or the imagery of death, their job was to purify themselves. It wasn't to hide from God. It wasn't to try to cover their shame. 
It was to use God's appointed means of purification. And again, these things vary. So when a person came into contact with a dead animal, it was wash your clothes and wait. In the case of a woman who'd given birth, there were a longer waiting period and some sacrifices to be offered. The most interesting one, I think, is the case of the person who's cleansed or healed of a, of a skin disease. His purification ritual looked a lot like the priest's. So he had to bring sacrifices, and he was anointed with blood on his earlobe and his thumb and his toe, just like the priest. And then he was anointed with oil. So this image of him being completely restored to fellowship with Israel. In all these cases, God provided for the unclean to be made pure. God provided for purification. The cleansing code teaches that we must be purified by God in order to worship him. There is no worship without purification. That's different than saying there's no worship without purity. That's true in a sense, but that's really only true of Christ. Christ is the only one who is pure. We all must be purified. And those who are purified, we we seek purity, right? Israel was supposed to seek to, to avoid defilement where they could, but we know they couldn't avoid it completely. So they had to be purified. This need for purification is still true of God's people today. In the book of John, chapter 13, we see that Jesus says this very thing as he ate the Last Supper with his disciples. Remember how Jesus took, on, took off his robes and he, he put a towel around his waist to dress, dress like a servant and he washed the disciples' feet. You remember the interaction between Peter and Jesus? This is John 13, 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We must be washed by Jesus if we would have communion with him, if we would share in him, participate in him. We live in a world stained by sin and death. And we know that, right? The Purity Code taught God's people that impurity was everywhere. Don't we know that all the more? It's not just on our TVs or our phones or billboards down the street. It's, it's in our hearts. Impurity is everywhere. Sin remains. Our hope is not in our perfection. It's not in purity that we generate. Our hope is in the washing Jesus provides. Since Jesus washing Peter's feet that night was a picture of the way he would serve us all on the next day by dying on the cross. There is no worship of God without cleansing. We do not present ourselves to God as perfectly pure in and of ourselves. The only way to come to God is for Jesus to purify you, for him to wash you. Is that how you see yourself? as someone defiled by sin, but purified by Christ. We have to admit that pride gets in the way of this. And it does this in some strange ways, because we, we subtly start to rely on our own purity. We create our own purity codes so that we can achieve them in our own, on our own power. That's what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. They created rituals for washing their hands and washing their dishes. These man-made traditions that actually kept them away from God. And they did it all in the name of staying pure. 
But Jesus tells them that your hearts are far from me when you celebrate your own purity. Think of the, the prejudice that their, their love of their own purity engendered in them. How they looked down on sinners and tax collectors because they were pure. You see the way we, we pervert God's purity code. We make it a, a badge of pride. But Jesus is clear. Our made-up rules, they don't bring us to God. They keep us from him. They keep us from seeing the cleansing that Jesus provides. Again, this is one of the great revelations of the new covenant. Is that all can be made pure in Christ. Jew and Gentile, no matter what they had for lunch, they can come to God in Christ and be purified. That's what makes us a church. We are those washed by Christ. Which means we are all by nature impure and defiled. We're stained. And our only hope is that Christ washes us clean. There is no worship of God without cleansing. And this leads us to our last point. We worship an atoning God. Chapter 16 outlines the ritual for the Day of Atonement. It was a day of repentance. A day when Israel was supposed to afflict themselves. Let's read the first ten verses of chapter 16 to start off. To get a sense of what happens on that day. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come in the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the only garments. Probably an imagery of Aaron dressing like a servant. He's not wearing his priestly robes, which is linen. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But on the goat which is the lot for Azazel, he shall, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. The ritual of the scapegoat here is one of the most striking in all the scripture. But it's also striking that we have no idea what this word Azazel means. That's why your Bibles just translate, or they don't, they don't translate it. They just basically copy it letter for letter, Azazel. It probably means something like a destruction. This goat is sent away to destruction. It's, it's chosen for destruction. But it wasn't actually killed. It was, it was to be confessed over and then led out to the wilderness. And you see that in verses 22, uh, 20 and 22. So after Aaron has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. 
And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So all the sins of Israel are confessed on the head of the goat. Notably, unlike when a worshiper brought an animal and laid one hand on it, this time Aaron is to lay both hands on it, perhaps symbolizing the, the fact that this, this goat is a sin-bearer goat. It's taken off to be released into the wilderness. It's a striking image of God removing our sins, this goat bearing the sins of Israel away. But before we look at that, I want to notice something else that's going on here. As Aaron makes sacrifices for sins for himself and the people, and as he confesses the sin of Israel, we see that the tabernacle itself is to be atoned for in the Day of Atonement ritual. It's being purified by this ritual. You can get a sense of the reason why at the end of chapter 15, verse 33, I'm sorry, that's not correct. I turned to Acts 15. Just Leviticus 15, 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The uncleanness of Israel defiled the tabernacle. And the Day of Atonement was God's way of purifying the tabernacle. So as Aaron sacrifices these goats and and bulls and brings their blood, he's to anoint different parts of the tabernacle, beginning with the mercy seat, the kind of the most holy place where God's presence dwells, and then kind of progressively working his way to the west until the whole thing has been anointed and purified. My point of drawing attention to this is that God is protecting Israel's access to himself. He's protecting that through dealing with Israel's sin by having it taken away on the scapegoat and by having the place where he dwells cleansed. This is all God's idea. God is intent on maintaining fellowship with his people. All because of his love and mercy. He's ordained this way of dealing with their sins and keeping his place of dwelling pure. This section that ends with, uh, uh, this section that began with the tabernacle defiled by Aaron's sons ends with Aaron there in the holy place where God is. God wants to dwell with his people. And not only does Aaron go in, but he gets to come out again alive. Right? This, the same priest whose sons have sinned, God accepts his worship and God sends him out then to do the scapegoat ritual. God receives Israel's worship. He meets with his people once again. We're back to another high point, just like we were in chapter 9. God fellowships with his sinful people. That's what God desires. And he made it possible through atonement. Atonement is his way of washing us, of purifying sinners from their sin. We worship an atoning God. The Day of Atonement points us to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was sacrificed for our sake. 
Do you see the love of God in sending Christ, the Passover lamb? Do you see the way God in his love separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west? We can't atone for our sin. We can't wash ourselves. But God has done it for us in Christ. When we look on Jesus in all of his crucified and risen and exalted glory, we should be like Isaiah. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, where he sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, filling the temple, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see the Lord in his glory, we know our uncleanness. But what happens next in Isaiah is that a cherubim takes a coal from the altar and touches his unclean lips and purifies them. Atonement is made for him. He was purified by God. Christ died to purify the impure. In Christ, there is hope for the defiled because we worship an atoning God. Today, defilement and impurity are kind of taboo subjects. I mean, no one wants to be thought of as defiled or or stinky or gross, right? But it's also not really uh, good to admit, to to say about others that they might be impure or defiled, right? Those are considered shaming words. And we have to admit, sometimes we, we use words like that to shame others and make ourselves look good. We have been self-righteous at times about our own cleanness and purity. But there is no hope for sinners unless they realize their defilement. There's no hope for any of us unless we acknowledge our impurity before the Lord. We have to see we're all in danger of being like Nadab and Abihu. Standing before a holy God in our impurity and being annihilated by him. Don't be caught in the lie that there's no hope for you. Don't be caught ignoring God's words and God's presence. Don't let the shame or guilt of impurity keep you from coming to God. There's no worship of God without cleansing. And Jesus came to cleanse us. Our God is an atoning God. Jesus would cleanse you of your sin. So come to him and be cleansed. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for you to help us. Help us to hear your word and obey it by coming in Christ. Grant us repentance for ways that we seek to come in our own good works. We pray for you to shatter our pride. Forgive us for any impurity that we've indulged in or pride in our own impurity. And help us to come and be cleansed by Christ, by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.